I've spent the last few years working for one of the largest shockwave clinics in North America, and I've learned a thing or two about the power and untapped potential of regenerative medicine. But the march towards a future where sickness is healed from its root cause is challenged by the influence of big pharma and their deep pockets. So now we're forced to answer questions like, how do we get rid of joint pain, take back our performance in the bedroom, and heal diseases from the inside out without band-aid medications or negative side effects? This show will give you the answers. Follow along as I interview the world's top experts and doctors and how they transform their lives and their patients' lives using the newest advances in biotechnology. I'm your host, Austin James Wolf, and you're listening to Modern Biotech Radio. Hey, what's up, Modern Biotech Pioneers? I'm your host, Austin James Wolf, and today I'm putting the FDA under trial for its FDA approval process. I looked into the nitty-gritty details, and I'm pissed off. Um, so... Uh, what today is not a cons- it's not about conspiracy theories. Uh, what today is about is actually analyzing the facts behind FDA approval, what that actually means for your safety. Hint, it ain't good. Uh, and also my opinions about it. So uh, there's going to be some opinions to the show because I'm very heated about it. But there's also going to be some facts, okay? And all those facts are going to be cited. Uh, they're going to be in those show notes, okay? So if you're watching along the video, uh, I have the references right in front of me. Um, and I'm going to read them off for you if you're listening to the podcast, okay? So you, uh, so you can have these facts, these citations, uh, listening as I'm, as I'm citing them, okay? Does that make sense? Uh, so I'm going to give you these facts. I'm going to give you my opinions. It's going to be a rough episode. I'm putting the FDA under trial here, okay? So first off, I'm talking about three things. Today, I'm talking about, number one, what makes something FDA approved? Uh, number two, what is the FDA approval process? And number three, what does FDA approval actually mean? Does it actually mean anything? Does it actually mean anything for your safety? Are you safe if you take something that's FDA approved? Um, spoiler alert, not necessarily. Uh, so let's get into it. So first of all, I want to talk about uh, the costs of um, FDA approval because there's no really room for that anywhere else in this sort of presentation. But um, the cost of clinical trials for new drug FDA approval, um, right now I'm citing the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. Okay. And they basically said right here, if you're watching along, I'm going to highlight this for you. If you're listening, listen up. Okay. Clinical trials to obtain FDA approval typically account for a small proportion of total drug research and development costs, studies suggest. So basically what they're saying is, uh, they said here, uh, in recent years, it's estimated to cost between 2 to $3 billion to get a new drug to the market. That is a lot of money, right? But how much does it actually cost to conduct a clinical trial to bring it to the FDA to then get their approval, right? It says right here, uh, I'm going to cite this whole thing. I'm going to highlight it for you if you're watching. Clinical trials that support FDA approvals of new drugs have a median cost of $19 million, according to a new study by a team including researchers from John Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. The study published September 24th in JAMA Internal Medicine is the most comprehensive analysis of key drug trial costs to date and suggests that these costs contribute only modestly to the overall costs of developing new drugs. So uh, in layman's terms, it cost a shit ton of money, okay? But $19 uh, $19 million was the median cost to conduct one of these clinical trials. What does that mean? There might be something that um, the smaller companies don't really have the resources to pull off if it really does cost two to three billion dollars to get a new drug to the marketplace. Could be good, can be bad. Um, but that's typically why a lot of new drugs cost a lot of money because they're $3 billion in the hole. And from their perspective, yeah, they want to make money, but yeah, they also want to help people. So, um, I like to bash big pharma cause I think they're evil. Uh, but at the same time, they're also human beings and there's probably a lot of good people that work there that actually work for the benefit of humanity. There are a lot of drugs out there that have done a lot of good for people, including vaccines. Um, I, David Sinclair actually said this, he's like, there's uh, he's like, there are some people that don't want vaccines, but now we're living in the world. See what happens to the world without one, right? 
uh, the, I'm recording this in the time of the coronavirus, right? Um, so uh, I'm pro-vaccine because if you look at the research, there was a lot of research suggesting that if there weren't any vaccines in the world, especially for malaria, uh, things would get very bad. Um, especially vaccines, even vaccines for measles. If we didn't have a vaccine for measles, every I'll have to cite the source for you. It's in Kurzik Scott in a nutshell did a video <laughs> detailing the numbers behind it. It ain't good. It ain't good if there weren't any vaccines. So I'm very pro-vaccine. Um, there's relatively very little side effects for a very small percentage of the population relative to the massive amount of children that would be dying without them. So uh, if, if you're an anti-vaxxer, there's no studies linking uh vaccines to autism there was one study that's briefly linked it but it's been debunked many times so uh if you're an anti-vaxxer um shame on you so uh, let's keep moving forward (laughs) that that's just my opinion though um i'm also gonna get a lot of hate for that but i don't care um you know what i care about i care about the truth and i care about science um so let's keep moving forward okay so that's the cost to approve uh drugs uh let's keep moving forward on what makes something actually FDA approvable. So uh, I'm citing this. This is from registrarcorp.com. They're a for-profit company. They don't have any association with the FDA, but they made a nice chart about what requires FDA approval. So if you're listening to the podcast, listen up, okay? If you're watching this, it's right here. Does it require FDA approval? This is their little This is their little chart. First, what is your product? Um, then they have a little box around food. Food, no. FDA does not approve food, beverages, or dietary supplements. The FDA, the general rule of thumb is FDA usually only approves, only approves man-made drugs, right? That's what the FDA is here for, food and drug administration. But the food part, no, actually food, FDA does not approve. Uh, as far as FDA approval is concerned, it does not approve food beverages or dietary, dietary supplements. Um, so if, if you see um, like a dietary supplement that says these uh, evaluations have not been, uh, these claims have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. It's because it's not the FDA's job to approve your supplement. It's not... It's not their job. They never, they never will approve that supplement because it's, it's not something that can be approved, right? Um, they're just ingredients. You can't FDA approve cinnamon. You can't FDA approve an apple. The, the whole FDA approval process, as a general rule of thumb, this is kind of out of context and it's, it's a generalization, but typically the FDA approval process is only for drugs as a generalization. There's some other more specific things that we'll get into in a minute, but it's typically only for drugs. Okay, let's go to drugs, over-the-counter drugs. Does your drug conform to an over-the-counter monograph? Now, what is an over-the-counter monograph? Uh, if you're listening to the podcast, um, we're on the drug section now, and uh, we're going through the chart. Does it require FDA approval? So the typical rule of thumb is, does uh, does your drug conform to an over-the-counter monograph? What is that? Um, this is from Google, uh, and this is from chpa.org. This is one of their answers. A monograph is a regulatory standard for ingredients. It's kind of a recipe book uh, covering acceptable ingredients, doses, formulations, indications, and labeling. Any over-the-counter medicine that conforms to the monograph may be manufactured and sold without an individual product license. That's what that's what this organization says. The FDA.gov right here says, uh, for over-the-counter drug monograph process, the monographs establish conditions under which certain over-the-counter drug products are generally recognized as safe and effective. So basically what they're saying is, um, does your drug conform to the over-the-counter monograph? Does it use ingredients that are already uh, established as safe and effective? If yes then your drug does not need, uh, they can be marketed without FDA approval because the monograph basically says, oh, your drugs are already in this list of safe and effective products. Oh, you don't need FDA approval. All these ingredients have already been approved, so you're good, right? That was a very harsh generalization, but that's kind of how it works. Now, if your drug does not conform to the monograph, these are typically new drugs, right, that have new formulations. 
If it does not conform to the monograph, then they do need FDA approval. Now, listen closely. I, I just spoke a lot of jargon. You might have been lost already. So the FDA basically has a guideline that if your drug already has these ingredients that they've deemed safe, you don't need FDA approval because you've already, these ingredients you've already proven are safe. Your drug uses these ingredients that are safe. Yeah, sure. You don't need our approval. The ingredients are already approved. Does that make sense? Um, but if your new drug doesn't have these ingredients, if it's a new, new drug, the FDA doesn't know if it's safe or not. So uh, you do require FDA approval. You have to go to, you know, you have to go through the whole clinical trial process and bring it to the FDA and prove to them that the benefits outweigh the risks. I'm going to keep saying that because that's very important. That's a whole, that's kind of the whole reason why I'm putting the FDA on trial right now, because that's kind of their general rule of thumb. The benefits outweigh the risks. Not that it's necessarily safe or entirely safe. Not that it'll actually work for you, but the benefits outweigh the risks. That's the rule of thumb. Let's keep moving forward. Uh, cosmetic. If you're if you're watching this, if you're listening, there's a little box around cosmetics. So we've already covered food. No, FDA does not approve food. Uh, over-the-counter drugs. It depends on whether uh, the new drug has ingredients that are already marked as safe and effective. If not, they got to go through the whole clinical trial process. For cosmetics, no, FDA does not require approval of cosmetic products and their ingredients before marketing. Uh, there's one little caveat uh, I was reading. I don't have the source in front of me right now, uh, but the caveat was, oh, does it have like food coloring or additional dyes in it? Those food coloring and dyes have to um, basically be approved if you add that to cosmetics. Uh, but other than that, no, most cosmetics do not require FDA approval uh, in their ingredients before marketing. So you're good on that. For medical devices, this is important. Um, is your device class three? So if you're listening, there's a box run medical device. Is your device class three? So uh, there's three different types of classes of medical devices. There's class one, class two, and class three, right? Class threes are like the most invasive. They're like heart valve pumps, stuff that like goes inside of you, very invasive, uh, can be very dangerous. So those are class three. Class two is, it's a bit different. There's, there's um, there can be topical applications. Typically it's not invasive. Uh, and then class one's like floss or toothbrush right? You can't really harm yourself unless you stab yourself in the eye with it. And that's user error, right? So there's class one, class two, class three, class three is the most quote can be dangerous. So if the device is a class three device, it does require FDA pre-market approval. Uh, if no, your product may be subject to pre-market notification. So what does that mean? Uh, just a disclaimer here. Uh, I, uh, work with the company, uh, launch medical and we made the rocket. It is a class two registered, uh, it's an FDA registered device and we used a 510K to bring it to market. What does that even mean? It means the rocket is a, it's a home use acoustic wave device. Um, and doctors are using it to reverse erectile off-label. Doctors are using it off-label to reverse erectile dysfunction, reverse Peyronie's disease, uh, improve sexual performance for those biohackers out there. If you just, you know, want to, if you're already at a 10 out of 10, but you want to be like a 12 out of 10, this can do that. The rocket can do that, but it's being used off-label because, uh, the FDA registration, uh, and the classification of the actual device is it's, it's just a uh, massager to increase local blood flow. That's it. That's all it is. So if you go to the FDA's rest, uh, uh, the FDA website and you look up the rocket, all it's going to say is uh, this has uh, been approved for local blood flow, improving local blood flow. Now, what do you think local blood flow means when you put it on your penis, right? <laughs> so that's, that's anyway. So uh, just just giving you that little spout of information there as a, as a personal anecdote. Um, there was already a class two device that did the exact same thing called the stores unit. It's a $40,000 device that most wave clinics were using at the time. And, uh, we invented the rocket using a new mechanism. So we have patents covering it and it's the cheapest you could ever make this form of uh, shockwave therapy to reverse CD, reverse Peyronie's it can also reverse joint pain and revert and remove cellulite. 
as well. So that's kind of cool. Uh, but we made it very cheap. So the storage unit cost about $40,000, at least when we bought it. The rocket cost significantly less, about 1500 bucks, sometimes a little less, right? So uh, what we did was uh, it, it acts the exact same way as the $40,000 device. And we looked at their FDA registration and we said, hey, our device literally works the exact same way as your device does. Um, hey, FDA, can we release this to the market since we've proven that it gives off the same shockwave as this $40,000 stores unit that already has your FDA approval? And the FDA said, yeah, sure. So that's how we became a class two uh, device, right? So that, that's the main difference. So the Rockets FDA register, that, that's sort of the main difference. It's, it's a little a little nebulous, a little ambiguous, but as far as medical devices go, that's kind of how it works. So if it's class three, it's invasive, you need FDA approval. So that is basically what makes something FDA approved. Now, if you're listening or if you're watching, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go really deep. This is uh. This is from FDA. Got uh. FDA. Gov. Is it really FDA approved? Is the name of their article. Um. So I'm gonna go deep on this. Okay. So are you ready? Are you guys ready? Let's go. So, uh. This is what the FDA does approve and what they don't approve. So not everything can be FDA approved. Um. This is very important. This whole part of this FDA trial I'm putting on for you guys. Uh. Just because something isn't FDA approved doesn't mean it's not safe. An apple can never be FDA approved. Is an apple safe for you? I mean, for most people it is, right? It's very good for you, but it can't ever be FDA approved. So just because something isn't FDA approved doesn't mean it's not safe for you. Doesn't mean it doesn't work, okay? The FDA can typically as a rule of thumb, the FDA only approves drugs and class three medical devices, okay? So just because something isn't a drug doesn't mean it's not good for you, right? Can the FDA approve exercise? Of course not. You can't FDA approve an exercise, right? Uh, here's another thing. This is from the FDA.gov. FDA doesn't approve companies. So, <laughs> duh, right? Uh, this seems like common knowledge, but the pharmaceutical companies that are pumping out tons and tons of medication that have to be FDA approved, the companies themselves don't have to be FDA approved. I mean, it's kind of common knowledge, right? Let's keep moving on. FDA does approve new drugs and biologics. Biologics is like certain uh, cellular therapies, blood products, things like that. So like um, uh, there's a certain type, there's a certain type of bone marrow stem cell, hemopoietic stem cell therapy uh, for leukemia. I don't know if it's if they approve it or not, but um, my, I, in fact, the only reason it's coming to mind is I think it's the only FDA approved stem cell treatment. I think uh, I could be wrong on that one, uh, but we're going to keep moving on. Uh, so the FDA does approve new drugs and biologics. Biologics is like cellular therapies. FDA doesn't approve compounded drugs. A, count, a compounding drug, a compounding, it says right here from the FDA, to, 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 sorry, FDA.gov. Compounding is generally a practice in which a pharmacist or doctor combines ingredients to create medications that meet the needs of individual patients, including those who are allergic to ingredients in FDA-approved med medicines or cannot swallow an FDA-approved pill, right? So it's the doctor, you know, combining ingredients, you know, like a chemist, like, yeah. So that's kind of what compounding is, and the FDA can't really, they don't approve compounded drugs, okay? Um, let's see. FDA uses a, this is another headline from FDA.gov in their article. FDA uses a risk-based tiered approach for regulating medical devices, Okay. So it says right here, the highest risk devices, class three, such as mechanical heart valves and implantable infusion pumps generally require FDA approval of a pre-market approval application before marketing, right? Uh, now this is class two. Generally, FDA clears moderate risk medical devices, class two, for marketing once it has been demonstrated that the device is substantially equivalent to a legally marketed predicate device that does not require pre-market approval. So that's what the rocket did with the storage device, okay? For those of you who are wondering, it's a class two device. So it's, it only needs to be FDA cleared, doesn't need FDA approval. Uh, devices that present a low risk of harm to the user, class one, <clears throat> like exam gloves or floss, subject to general controls only. Okay, we're gonna keep moving on. Uh, as the, this is another headline. FDA uses a risk-based approach for human cells and tissues. 
Uh, this isn't really about that right now, so I'm going to keep moving on. FDA doesn't approve tobacco products. There's no such thing as a safe tobacco product. So FDA safe and effective standards for evaluating medical products is not appropriate for tobacco products, right? Uh, FDA approves food additives in food for people. So food additives, this is what I was talking about before. Um, coatings, uh, different things. I think the sticker on the apples FDA approved. I'm not sure about that one. Don't quote me on that. Uh, FDA approves color additives using FDA-regulated products. Uh, so this includes those used in food, like animal food, dietary supplements, drugs, cosmetics, and some medical devices. Okay, so color additives have to be uh, FDA-approved. FDA approves animal drugs and approves food additives for use in food for animals. Okay? Uh, FDA does not approve cosmetics. We already went over that one. The FDA doesn't approve medical foods. Uh, interesting, but... Uh, I'm going to keep moving on. FDA doesn't approve infant formula. The FDA doesn't approve dietary supplements. We already went over that one. The FDA doesn't approve the food label, <laughs> including the nutrition facts panel. Interesting. The FDA doesn't approve structure function claims on dietary supplements. Interesting. Oh, 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 okay. Affect the structure of the human body. One example is calcium builds strong bones. So the FDA doesn't approve claims on that. Um, cool. And then the last part of their audio, uh, their uh, article is misuse of FDA's logo and may violate federal law. All right, so I won't be using their logo in this video. Uh, so anyway, so that's the FDA approval process. There's certain things that uh, they're authorized to approve or disapprove uh, and certain things that they have no realm in being in. They, they, they can't stick their hands in apples, right? You can't FDA approve an apple. So there are certain things that can never be FDA approved. Is it bad that it's not FDA approved? Well, let me ask you this. An apple, let me, let, me, let me tell you this. An apple is not FDA approved. Does that mean an apple is bad for you? No, not at all. So I just want to impose this question upon you. There are certain things that can be FDA approved, but certain things that fall under a category that it can never be FDA approved. So therefore, just because something cannot be FDA approved doesn't mean it's not good for you. doesn't mean it's dangerous, okay? I just want you to keep that in mind. Uh, so we just went over the whole, the first point, what makes something FDA approved? Um, and now what we're going to do is we're going to talk about we're actually going to talk about the number two and number three kind of in tandem. What's the FDA approval process and does FDA approval actually mean anything? Okay, so we're going to talk about these together. All right, you guys ready? Let's jump right in. I know this is a lot of information, uh, but I'm citing all these in the show notes. Okay, so just so you know, this is a this is an article, a response that someone wrote in Quora. Uh, it's a question and answer forum. Um, and typically, questions and answers and forums are <laughs> not really... Uh, based in science, so you shouldn't actually use them as evidence. But I particularly liked this guy's response because he actually cites with quotations um, his his statement, okay? Uh, so he's making the claim that with the FDA, it's the bottom line, the profitability, right? So he's one of those conspiracy theorists. But the reason why I like this article is because he's citing uh, actual people and actual facts and other scientists. So that's what I'm actually going to read to you. Okay, so we're going to go through this. <clears throat> okay, so he says... Um, Everything that's in your medicine cabinet is there because the drug uh, has gone through a clinical trial. Great. For a basic introduction to clinical trials, let's turn to former editor-in-chief of the prestigious New England Journal of Medicine, Dr. Marcia, uh, I believe it's Angel, who wrote the following in her frightening landmark piece called, in quotes, Drug Companies and Doctors, A Story of Corruption. All right, so obviously this guy is coming at it from a conspiracy theorist angle, but he's quoting uh, this book, right? Uh, he's quoting Dr. Marcia Angel. And this is that person's quote. Before a new drug can enter the market, its manufacturer must sponsor clinical trials to show the Food and Drug Administration that the drug is safe and effective, usually as compared with a placebo or dummy pill. 
The results of all of the trials, there may be many, are submitted to the FDA, and if one or two trials are positive, that is, they show effectiveness without serious risk, the drug is usually approved even if all the other trials are negative. I believe this, the writer of the article emphasized that, but even if all the other trials are negative, what does that actually mean? That means that the company uh, can do 10 different trials and nine of the trials can be duds and show that the drug is dangerous, you shouldn't do it. But if one trial is good, they're going to submit just that trial. And the FDA only sees that trial, so they say, yeah, sure, drug's approved, right? It's not really a good thing. <clears throat> this person says, but there's an even bigger problem with clinical trials, according to Dr. Richard Smith, editor of the British Medical Journal for 25 years. He explained the problem in his Public Library of Science Journal article called, in quotes, medical journals are an extension of the marketing arm of pharmaceutical companies. Again, conspiracy theory, uh, but this is uh, Dr. Richard Smith, and these are his words. A much bigger problem lies with the original studies, particularly these clinical trials published by medical journals. Far from discounting these, journal readers see randomized controlled trials as one of the highest forms of evidence. Rightly so, it makes sense. Uh, <clears throat> quote, a large trial published in a major journal has the journal's stamp of approval, will be distributed around the world, and may well receive global media coverage, particularly if promoted simultaneously by press releases from both the journal and the expensive public relations firms hired by the pharmaceutical company that sponsored the trial. For a drug company, a favorable trial is worth thousands of pages of advertising, which is why a company will sometimes spend upwards of a million dollars on reprints of that trial for worldwide distribution, end quote. Here's an example of what Dr. I'm still reading the article. Here's an example of what Dr. Smith is talking about. A study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association reported that the drug giant Merck had hired medical ghostwriters to draft dozens of flattering research papers about their now discredited pain drug, Vioxx. They then lined up well-known doctors who agreed to fraudulently claim to be the actual offers, authors for submission to journals. The New England Journal of Medicine sold 929,400 reprints of a single Vioxx-friendly research article it had published mostly sold directly to the drug's own manufacturer, Merck, in fact. Merck sales reps then distributed these reprints to physicians on their daily call routes as part of their aggressive Vioxx sales campaign. Now, where do most doctors learn the new information from? Pharmaceutical reps, because they're the ones that are kicking down the doors and showing them new studies, right? Uh, like I say this on tons of other shows and podcasts. The reason why doctors haven't heard of these brilliant therapies called sound wave therapy that actually reverse ED and Peyronie's disease and instead prescribe people drugs that actually cause a lot of harm is because most doctors have uh, your benefit at heart, right? But the thing is, they're so busy helping patients, they don't really have time to keep up on all the new clinical research, right? So uh, where do they learn most of their information from? Pharmaceutical reps, because those are the ones that are actually making an effort to educate the doctors, educate them, right? Um, so that's where the doctors learn most of their education from, is from the pharmaceutical companies, unfortunately. Um, reprint orders from this one ghostwritten Viax article brought in more than... <laughs> $697,000 in revenue for the New England Journal of Medicine. Medical journal editors who don't want to bite the big pharma hand that feeds them apparently learn to hold their noses and accept this. And as Dr. Smith explains, quote, <clears throat> the doctors receiving the reprints may not even read them, but they will be impressed by the name of the journal from which they come. The quality of the journal will bless the quality of the drug. So what he's saying is uh, these pharmaceutical reps will hand... Uh, the doctors, these these uh, medical journals uh, and these these research articles uh, and these clinical trials done on this drug, and if it's just published in a reputable um, journal, the doctors may not even read the entire clinical trial. 
and I've seen this happen before many times. So they'll just um, basically say, oh, the, the merit of the drug is based on the merit of the journal. And if the journal has great merit, then so does the drug, right? Whereas it may not necessarily be true. Um, so consider also the systematic review published in the British Medical Journal comparing the outcomes of studies funded by the pharmaceutical industry with outcomes of studies funded from other sources. Now, a disclaimer, I'm, I'm reading off, I'm not on the article anymore, I'm just talking to you if you're listening right now. Uh, this guy is going to make a point in his article that I'm reading off of that companies that fund their own clinical research are typically, typically going to get better results in their clinical trials because they skew some of the data. Um, so that's the claim that he's about to make, but he does have evidence to support it. Now, common knowledge might think, oh, of course, if, uh, if I spend my own money to uh, do a clinical trial, of course, I'm going to want the best results. I mean, that's not really true to science. And, and this is an unfortunate fact that we have to deal with. Um, but he's uh, the writer of this article is going to cite information, which I will then read those sites to you listening uh, about why this is actually bad. Okay, so let's keep moving forward. Just keep that in mind. Researchers found that 13 of the 16 clinical trials or, or meta-analysis studies had outcomes favorable to the drug companies that funded the studies. Of course they did. In fact, studies funded by a company were four times more likely to have results favorable to the company than studies funded from other sources. In the case of five studies that looked at economic evaluations, the results were favorable to the sponsoring company in every case. <clears throat> the evidence is strong. Now, I don't actually have anything against this. What I do have against it is the scrambling of data. That's what is wrong. Um, for example, we're probably going to put our own clinical trial together for the rocket, and we're probably going to see some very good results because it works. Um, so I'm not against uh, companies that sponsor clinical trials having favorable outcomes because they probably already know that it's going to have a favorable outcome, right? But what I am against is data scrambling, and that's what this uh, writer is going to get into in a minute. Data scrambling is wrong, okay? Uh, let's see. <clears throat> the evidence is strong, warns Dr. Smith, that drug companies are generally getting exactly the results they want from the clinical trials they pay for. And this is especially worrisome because between two-thirds and three-quarters of the trials published in the major medical journals are funded by the industry. <clears throat> but how is it possible that these companies are getting such bizarrely predictable, favorable results? Dr. Smith suggests that they're not fiddling with the research results, which he claims would be far too crude and possibly detectable by peer review but rather are simply asking the right questions, end quote. How to accomplish this? Dr. Smith advises this primer for Big Pharma. This, these are the methods used by pharmaceutical companies to get the results they want from clinical trials, okay? So again, <clears throat> they're not necessarily tampering with the data, but they're scrambling it a little bit <clears throat> to give the appearance that the drug is actually better than what it actually is and is less riskier than the dangers it might actually bring with it. Okay, so here are some of the methods that uh, big Pharma uses for some of their drugs to uh, have basically a study that proves that it's really a lot better than what it actually is. So number one, conduct a trial of your drug against a treatment known to be inferior. Now, common sense would tell you, of course, that would make the drug that you're testing to look amazing, right? So I just, as I read these along, I want you to actually think about that in your mind and use your common sense. Okay, number two, trial your drugs against too low a dose of a competitor drug. What do you think that would do? Number three, conduct a trial of your drug against too high a dose of a competitor drug, which makes your drug seem less toxic. Number four, conduct trials that are too small to show differences from competitor drugs. So if that competitor drug over there 
seems like it's safe and effective, conduct a trial that are too small uh, to show a, a difference. So basically, you can basically tack on the safeness of your competitor drug and say, hey, my drug's just as safe as their drug. Am I on number five? One, two, three, four. Uh, number five, use multiple endpoints in the trial and select for publication only those that give favorable results. I'm going to go back to that one in a minute because that one, it's kind of a can of worms. Number six, do multi-center trials and select for publication only those results from centers that are favorable. So some other centers may objectively show that your drug might have some risks to it that are very bad. And then Big Pharma chooses not to publish those, right? Um, I found number six. Number seven, conduct subgroup analyses and select for publication only those that are favorable. Same thing. Number eight, present results that are most likely to impress, for example, reduction in relative risk rather than absolute risk. Now, what does that mean? What does a reduction in relative risk rather than absolute risk actually mean? I'm going to jump into that in a bit. Uh, but one thing I actually want to talk about here, um, this is going to link out to another study uh, and another analysis done, which I'm going to read for you here because this is very important. Using multiple endpoints in the trial and select for publication only those that give favorable results. This is super important. This is data scrambling, okay? Using multiple endpoints in the trial and select for publication only those that give favorable results. What does that actually mean? Well, uh, the guy, the writer of the article quotes another article uh, that has some clinical research behind it. So this is, uh, this is very important and I actually wanted to read uh, this thing for you because it's pretty important. You should, you should know this. Okay. Okay. So he basically says in the wonderful world of medicine, there's little exceptions to every rule. There's this thing called the French paradox in which French citizens who eat more high fat dairy foods, smoke more and exercise less than all of their European neighbors have one of the lowest rates of heart disease in Europe. How can that be? We don't know, right? This is what statist statisticians call intermediate or surrogate endpoints. endpoints. It means you can't really predict the final consequence based on how things are going along the way. What does that actually mean? Well, the writer of the article uh, basically relates this to soccer. So um, let's look at some early World Cup matches that did indeed seem to prove the effective theory. Now, this theory is um, one of the theories in soccer is the team that can maintain possession of the soccer ball for most of the match will be the team that ultimately wins. This is the theory, right? Uh, and some of the World Cup matches match this theory. Chile owned the ball for 56% of their match against Honduras and won 1-0. Germany controlled the ball for 55% of the match against Australia and won 4-0. But on the other hand, there are some clear exceptions to this theory. England possessed the ball for 54% of their match against the USA, but only managed a 1-1 tie. France had 53% ball possession during their game against Mexico, but lost 2-0. Similarly puzzling results have come in medical research, explained senior reporter Andrew Holtz at the Medical Information Network, MDITV. For example, he cites recent studies on patients with diabetes that included aggressive control of blood sugar, high blood pressure, and cholesterol in people considered to be at very high risk for heart attacks. Oddly enough, the research showed that strict management of blood sugar did not reduce heart attack deaths. Reduction in high blood pressure levels did not reduce heart attack deaths. Controlling in high LLD, LDL cholesterol numbers with the use of statin drugs did not reduce heart attack deaths. Holtz explains that lab results may not actually be accurate predictors of mortality. They are merely intermediate or surrogate endpoints along the way. And just because a drug uh, improves lab test results doesn't mean it saves lives. I'm going to repeat that again. 
Just because a drug improves lab test results doesn't mean it saves lives, despite the efforts of Big Pharma to convince drug prescribers otherwise, aka doctors. A perfect example of this, uh, the patient information that the drug maker Pfizer includes on every single bottle of its cholesterol-lowering blockbuster statin drug Lipitor. Uh, uh, it says here, quote, Lipitor has not been shown to prevent heart disease or heart attacks, end quote. I find this astonishing given that Lipitor has been the biggest selling drug on the planet prescribed by millions of physicians for one reason only, so that their patients wouldn't have a heart attack. Big Pharma has yet again shown remarkable success in convincing doctors to prescribe a drug that the drug's own manufacturer tells us does not achieve the insinuated end result. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that crazy? They convince the doctors to prescribe this to patients to reduce that risk of heart attack, even though it says on the drug, this has nothing to do with heart attacks. It has not been shown to prevent uh, heart attacks. This is truly a triumph of marketing-based medicine. I'm going to give you one more example. Similarly, clinical trials showed that the statin drug Simvastatin Zocor was effective in reducing cholesterol, the surrogate, the surrogate endpoint, without showing directly that simvastatin prevents cardiac events. In fact, proof of Zocor's efficacy in reducing cardiovascular disease was finally only presented by Norwegian researchers five years after its original introduction, and then only for a secondary prevention in those already diagnosed with heart disease. In another statin drug case, AstraZeneca has been accused of marketing Rosuvastatin, Crestor, without providing hard endpoint data, relying instead on surrogate endpoints. The company simply replied that it had been tested on larger groups of patients than any other drug in the same statin class and that its effects should be comparable to the other statins. Now, uh, Dr. Lawrence S. Friedman of the National Cancer Institute in the U.S. wrote about intermediate endpoints in the American Journal of Epidemiology back in 1992. He explained that when studying a potential intermediate endpoint in a clinical drug trial, for example, these five questions must be asked. Does the treatment affect the intermediate endpoint? Is the uh, actually? I'm not going to read these. This might be uh, <laughs> too much techno babble for you if you're listening. But ultimately, just as in World Cup football, all that really counts is the final score. So, what does that actually mean? Why, why did I why did I read that long ass article for you? Because a lot of these drug companies um, will basically. Uh, do a study, let's say, oh, uh, Crestor, uh, for example, Lipitor. They'll do a massive study. Lipitor uh, reduces something uh, which may reduce heart disease or heart attacks. And then they'll go to the doctors and say, hey, use Lipitor to decrease the rate of heart disease and heart attacks, heart attacks in your patients. Whereas it hasn't actually been proven. It's only been proven halfway, right? So Lipitor may affect, Lipitor can lower cholesterol, which may lower heart disease, but it hasn't been proven that Lipitor lowers heart disease. Does that make sense? So there's that, mid, there's that midpoint. Uh, Lipitor uh, can reduce cholesterol. Again, there's probably some terrible side effects, and it doesn't deal with the root cause of why you have cholesterol in the first place. Uh, but Lipitor, even though it may lower cholesterol, and lowered cholesterol is related to a lower risk of heart disease or heart attacks, that doesn't mean that Lipitor prevents heart disease or heart attacks. Does that make sense? So that's the main difference. Um, so uh, I just put the whole FDA on trial right now, and I've gone through what makes something FDA approved, what's the FDA approval process, does the FDA approval actually mean anything? Um, and so let me ask you this. What do you think? What do you think FDA approval actually means? If there are certain drugs that are being pushed into the marketplace that still have very high risks to them, does being FDA approved actually mean that it's safe to use? There are certain drugs that don't actually uh, do what they're intended for. Livator is technically being marketed for preventing heart disease and heart attacks, yet it actually hasn't been shown to prevent heart disease or heart attacks. So does FDA approval for Livator actually mean anything to you? I want you to ask those self, I want you to ask yourself those hard questions because 
what I'm getting from these studies, this is what I'm getting, this is my opinion, that FDA approval is a clever marketing term, but the FDA also has your best interests at heart. They want to make sure that the new drugs that drug companies are pushing out to the marketplace aren't going to kill you, right? So their whole, again, their rule of thumb is the benefits outweigh the risks. Now those risks might be very high, right? But that doesn't mean, uh, the benefits might be really high as, as well, but that doesn't mean that the drug, even though it's FDA approved, is safe for you, okay? So I just want the, to ingrain this in your mind. FDA approval does not equal safety. It does not. FDA approval does not equal safety. So uh, that's one of the common myths that people have. Oh, is it FDA approved? Yeah, it's great, safe. No, wrong. It's not, it's not it at all. It just means that the FDA has decided that the benefits outweigh the risks and it's fine for the company to market it. It does not mean that uh, the FDA, it does not mean that an FDA approved substance or device is safe for you, okay? So I just wanted to dispel that myth. Uh, hopefully that, hopefully this sh shines a spotlight on the dark areas of your mind concerning the FDA. Um, again, I don't think that the FDA has ill intent. I do think that they have your best interests at heart because you're a taxpayer and you need to pay the IRS, right? Uh, the FDA does not want you to die of stuff. They just want to make sure that new drugs and new devices don't kill you because then the government loses money and it's, it's a big thing. It's a big deal, right? Um, so, but again, FDA approval does not equal safety. So I just want to put that out there. That's a common misconception that people have that just because something is FDA approved automatically means that it works and it's safe. That is not true. That is the whole point of this video. Uh, I hope you learned something. If you guys have any questions, um, if you're watching the video, please ask the questions in the comments below. Uh, if you are listening to the podcast, go ahead and leave me a review. Uh, it helps more people see this information. If you think this is important, go ahead and leave a review for me. That'd be great. I love feedback. Even if it's a one star, let me know. Uh, but if you have a question, typically what I do is leave a review and then uh, leave your question also in the review and I'll answer it on the show itself. So if you'd like to get your personal question answered, go ahead and leave me a review on iTunes uh, and ask your question in the review as well. All right, guys, hope this helped. You and I are slowly dying as we age, but that's common knowledge. What isn't common knowledge is that you can actually reverse the damage that aging has done to you. We develop joint pain, hair loss, lung problems, but many of our patients have actually reversed these problems using the latest breakthroughs in biotechnology. If you'd like to know what biotech we're using on ourselves, our families, and our patients, and how you can use it to transform your body and change your life, just go to modernbiotechradio.com. Now, you might be thinking, does this stuff actually work? Well, it does not work for everybody. So if you'd like to learn if this could work for you, just go to modernbiotechradio.com. You might also be thinking, if this works so well, why hasn't my doctor told me about it? That's a good question, and the answer is a bit complicated. Maybe they're too busy helping patients to keep up with the newest clinical studies and advances in medicine and biotech. Or maybe they just haven't started doing it yet, but want to. Back in the day, we didn't know about these advances, but once we learned about them, we read the clinical studies and started doing it in our own practice. Once our patients started getting results, unlike anything we've ever seen before, we never looked back. So if you'd like to learn the latest advances in biotechnology and how you can use it to reverse aging and feel young again, just go to modernbiotechradio.com. You can learn all about these advances and even join our private community full of others that love biotech Oh, yeah, this is completely free. No strings attached. All you have to do is just go to modernbiotechradio.com. I'll see you there.